Hello everyone, and welcome to another mini-episode of Balkwell's Books, uh, the audio program uh, in which I talk about books, uh, me, or I, being being Balkwell. Today, we are covering The Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, first published in 1932. This is an, an immensely popular novel in the English-speaking world. Many people read it in high school uh, or hear about it in high school. It's brought up all the time, uh, as far as I see, um, by people. Because, I mean, these this sort of dystopian fiction is quite popular nowadays. And Brave New World specifically, um, Aldous Huxley seems to understand certain trends that were occurring in the 20th century, and the book is an attempt to reckon with where these trends might lead us in the future. Um, Obviously, Aldous Huxley's uh, idea here is not to predict the future. Uh, That's not what sort of science fiction or even dystopian fiction is about. It's about showing or... um, yeah, showing the possible endpoints of certain trends, and in in many respects, Brave New World is a satire, and I think um, this might sometimes be ignored or, or not accentuated to the point that I think uh, it should, because it's quite clear, especially at the beginning of the book. Um, he definitely had that sort of um, almost uh, Jonathan Swift sort of style here. I mean, when Jonathan Swift writes about proposing we should all eat babies, clearly he doesn't actually mean that. It's it's an exaggeration. And this book is very clearly an exaggeration in its initial sections. Later, the book attempts to, to ground itself a little more, but especially this first chapter, when we're dealing with, um, or when we're presented with this sort of eugenics facility um, in England, um, all these references to his Ford ship, uh, the the crosses with their tops lopped off to become T's, um, it's it's ridiculous. You know, it's it's overdone. It's 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 crazy. You know, this idea that Henry Ford and this mass production model would take over as a sort of uh, civil religion uh, of England. The, this whole um, passage. Is sort of littered with these little little jokes, little jabs that, that make it clear the sort of um, mode that uh, Ellis Huxley is working in here. Um, it is deliberately ridiculous. It's supposed to shock us. It's supposed to make us think this is this is crazy. And there's actually quite a good reason for this, because the the world that exists in Brave New World is crazy. Um, but all the people living in it, or m- I should say most of the people living in it that we see, don't find it crazy. They th- think it's it's totally normal and totally fine. Um, and this isn't because uh, they're stupid, necessarily, although some of them are presented as, as quite explicitly kind of stupid. Um, it is because th- this world is taking their desires into account. It doesn't feel... It's not like something like 1984 where a world is imposed on people. 
Um, in Brave New World, it's very easy to see how actual human desires of a massive populace of people could lead to to such a world that their desires are being fulfilled and many of them could quite easily be said to be happy you know the these nobody or, or most of the characters are not disappointed in this world and so while we read it often as a dystopia uh, it's utopian um, and in fact I think in a way it's almost satirizing utopia uh, utopianism in itself that when you try to create a world that fulfills people's desires so succinctly um, and so impersonally um, this is sort of what you get you get these sort of um, this impersonal world this world where everything's taken care of for you um, where you're not um, inspired to create anything there's no sort of none of the suffering that inspires people to to true sort of creativity and i think a lot of what's missing in brave new world that would make us think of it as a dystopia is this lack of human individu individuality uh human freedom creative freedom um the arts in, in general i mean we see later on in the book that most of the people who dissent um are artists so anyway that's the people who like it but what's funny in this book is that the people who don't like the sort of regime or, or the the brave new world in which they live are extremely um broken and sort of anti-social individuals they're not heroes and and while they're relatable we don't relate to them um for their positive qualities but if we do relate to them it's it's in their negative qualities it's in these um in their neuroses and they're they're pretty unlikable to be honest and it's quite an interesting uh, idea here because when you if if we see this book as a as a dystopia or we think Aldous Huxley is presenting a dystopia it is an odd choice then to make the dissenters such t sort of terrible people that we don't like clearly it's not as simple as this book depicting a dystopia clearly Aldous Huxley has sort of some sort of sympathy with the authorities that that it, um, maintain this world clearly he sees that this world is providing something for people it has some positive qualities or else it, it makes no sense to to have the characters like this is clearly intentional and so these two characters we have uh, the first is Bertrand Marx uh, this is future Balkwell here uh, I I kept calling him Bertrand Marx um, that's just a mistake his name is Bernard Marx but uh, I'm not gonna go edit every time I say Bertrand it's it's Bernard I say Bertrand that's just the way it is so this is quite obviously a reference to Karl Marx and the idea here is so if we look at Brave New World as a satirization or criticism of utopian thinking this is sort of playing off the idea of Karl Marx as a utopian 
thinker. I think this is kind of a misinterpretation on Huxley's part, but it was a very common uh, interpretation at the time, especially if we look at the fact that he's living in a world where Karl Marx's um, ideology or the ideology of Marxism is being instrumentalized uh, as a utopian vision in the Soviet Union. Um, you can sort of understand this idea of Marx as a utopian thinker. Personally, I think there's um, Marx is, is a bit more grounded than that, and that uh, obviously is, is, it's very materialist philosophy, uh, very grounded in the present reality and criticizing the present reality. But there was this sort of right-wing idea that Karl Marx's criticisms um, were innately personal and were based on the fact that Karl Marx couldn't thrive uh, in a capitalist system, that he was like lazy or, or all these other things. <clears throat> and this is the reason his sort of... Um, he that he developed, they, they think he developed a sort of resentment toward capitalism that caused him to write Capital and talk about communism. <clears throat> I think most people now look at that, well, I mean, a lot of people still believe this, but it, it's it's not really accurate, I don't think, but this is sort of the, the idea that Aldous Huxley is using here. Bertrand Marx does not like this system because he doesn't fit in it. You know, he is uh, sort of in the upper echelon of uh, people in terms of this eugenically divided uh, class structure, but he's short and he's kind of grumpy and dumpy and, and people don't like him. The women don't really want to sleep with him, even though they, it seems everyone likes sleeping with everyone. He's sort of not part of that. He, he's, uh, he's an outcast. And we see that when Bertrand Marx finds his avenue for um, fitting in to, to the sort of social fabric, when he starts using uh, John Savage um, and exhibiting him and getting this sort of praise uh, and popularity that comes from being associated with, with John Savage, um, he's fine. He's like, yeah, this is cool. You know, as long as this world is serving me, it's good. When it's not serving me, it's bad. So it, it's kind of an interesting that someone who is critiquing the world, I mean, it's kind of a straw man when, when you think about it, but that the world is a dystopia when it's not good for him, but it's a utopia when it's good for him. Um, this is sort of a part of Huxley's sort of criticism of utopia in general, I think, because a utopia is always going to be somewhat personal. When people write these stories of utopias, what they're writing is a world that would work really great for specifically the type of person that they are. And some people are able to sort of expand, um, their mind and think of other people and, and, try to be more altruistic in that sense, but most utopias are pretty focused um, on pleasing a certain type of person. And Brave New World does the same thing because, you know, obviously the people who benefit from Brave New World um, are the eugenically 
superior uh, alphas, and everyone else is, is not having such a good time. Although, are they having a bad time? I mean, every time they're presented, they're a sort of happy little little sheep. So it's, it's, it's weird. Um, perhaps um, a, a part of this sort of altruism, I mean, in terms of a utopia created by the nobles or n- utopia created by the elites, is this fundamental in- misunderstanding of the proletariat or of the average, you know, working person that they are kind of stupid, that they... Um, are almost beast-like or animal-like in their desires, that if you give them these simple um, things, like give them food, give them entertainment, then they will just go along with anything. That They don't have this sort of deeper or higher um, feelings that come out in, in artwork or things like this. So that's, that's another sort of uh, implicit criticism there. So b- beside Bertrand Marx... We have John Savage, uh, and I mean, talk about on the nose, but um, John Savage, he, he's a weird guy, the son of per, of a woman who is from this sort of world that Bertrand Marx exists in, uh, this sort of very regulated eugenic uh, u- utopia. I'm, I'm using quotation marks when I say utopia. Uh, I guess you can't, people listening to this can't see that, but I hope it comes across in, in my voice, I suppose. So John John Savage is born in this, this sort of reservation uh, that has a lot of weird uh, racial aspects to it that I, I don't really want to get into right now, because I, I don't have the time or the expertise to, to really get into it too much at the moment, but he's sort of an outcast in this world because his parents um, are both from the sort of so-called world state. Um, He's not really accepted uh, on this sort of reserve, cultural reserve that exists in in New Mexico, I think it is. And so he's, he's caught between these two worlds. And so he loses himself in literature and specifically in Shakespeare. And uh, Shakespeare is one of these guys, I mean, this is going to sound weird to say, but he's just one of these guys that these sort of mid-20th century um, people love to point to as, like, the epitome of culture. Like, Shakespeare is, like, the highest uh, form of poetics, or, or like his, his dramas are art, like, if you want to represent something being high art you talk about Shakespeare we see in uh, Ray Bradbury in Fahrenheit 451 um, he talks about Shakespeare a lot in terms of the value of of books or literature in that sense and don't want to get into that because that book's a whole other uh, world whole other thing don't don't really like that one, but anyway. So John Savage loves Shakespeare, and he's sort of idealizes uh, the past, idealizes uh, the literature of Shakespeare, and is pretty disappointed in the world that actually exists. Bertrand Marx sort of takes him out of this reservation, brings him back to the sort of so-called world state. And uh, John Savage does not like it, because people here also don't act like William Shakespeare's characters. Um, 
and that's very disappointing to him. And they don't, um, they don't appreciate these sort of higher ideals, this high art that John Savage has come to understand. And he ends up sort of resigning himself to a sort of extreme asceticism. Um, because one thing that this world doesn't provide, the world state doesn't provide, is suffering. And uh, John Savage believes that what leads to art, what leads to this sort of, you know, high literature of Shakespeare is is suffering. And so this is why, at the end of the novel, he turns to a sort of extreme uh, asceticism. So when we read Brave New World, um, it ends up actually being somewhat difficult to understand um, in sort of black and white terms whether this dystopia or whether this place or this world that has been created is dystopian or, or utopian, who it's dystopian for and who it's utopian for. And like I said before, I think this is an implicit critique of utopian thinking in, in general. Because when we talk to the sort of one of the administrators of the whole system at the end of the book, you you can tell that there is a lot of sympathy uh, in the way that he's written for um, the, the way that this world is constructed. And that this sort of philosophy of people as sort of pleasure-maximizing uh, machines that you can sort of make them happy by just pumping them full of, of pleasure essentially and that pleasure is uh, the opposite of suffering and the opposite of pain and that suffering and pain are contradictory to pleasure um, this is the sort of philosophy that uh, under that is serves as the foundation for the world state that has been created. And we see in the novel that it is partially correct, that there is a sense in which this world does work for certain people. But you can also see in the examples of Bertrand Marx and John Savage, and perhaps many more who we don't follow in the novel or people who don't um, speak up, uh, to the extent that they do, that that it's not working for everyone, that, that there's something missing, that there's there's something missing there, and that there's something missing can only really be found on, on the fringes um, because it's been pushed away. But it's difficult to say that John Savage's utopia wouldn't isolate even more people or that Bushland Marx's potential utopia wouldn't uh, in its own way, uh, push people out and ignore large masses of people. Bertrand Marx's utopia would work really well for Bertrand Marx, and if we think about it, very likely would not work very well for basically anyone who isn't Bertrand Marx. So I think that's really um, what I take away from Brave New World at the end, um, is that I, I don't see it, I mean, it does have these satirical qualities of criticizing, pleasure-maximizing, um, criticizing eugenics, but not really criticizing eugenics in a 
particularly effective manner, I think, if he's really trying to be critical of it. Um, it, it sometimes it doesn't come across uh, that way, which is odd. Um, but more than criticizing the specifics of uh, the Brave New World, it is criticizing this very idea of constructing a utopia, of this utopian thinking being instrumentalized. I mean, obviously, you can dream up whatever freaking world you like and, and have a lot of fun, and it can have a lot of meaning for people, and it can help shape the ways they act. But as an actual tool or as an actual, um, I guess, if, if you are given or if you have this ultimate power to actually put it into practice um, as an individual um, or with an individualized sort of philosophy, um, then it won't work. That it is this sort of intermixing of different ideologies and philosophies um, that is required to make an actual functioning uh, community or functioning world or, or system that you, you need that sort of interplay between different people, different worldviews, or else you're going to end up with a very lopsided uh, sort of world that uh, is kind of scary and, and, and strange. So that's Brave New World uh, by Aldous Huxley. I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I didn't get um, particularly deep into the novel, but um, I mainly wanted to present a slightly different uh, interpretation of it uh, that I don't really see being talked about elsewhere. So that's sort of the, the idea in this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you enjoy the show, um, you can subscribe on uh, Spotify or Apple or, or any of these sort of places. Leave a review or a five stars or, or something like that. It helps uh, people find out about the show. Uh, or you can subscribe on YouTube, um, where the channel is called Balkwell. You can visit my website, balkwell.substack.com, or I now have a custom domain, balkwell.online. So if you go to balkwell.online, there's my website. There I post nonfiction essays every two weeks that you can read and enjoy, and you can subscribe there to receive emails every time I do so. Final note, I recently published my own novel, Only in Dreams. Put put that out last month. Sort of a love story, coming-of-age sort of tale. Uh... You may enjoy it if you enjoy these other things that I do, so check that out. It's on Amazon. Uh, Thank you for listening, and goodbye.